Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 25. In this episode, I talk with Nicole Landy, associate professor at the University of Connecticut. Nicole and I discuss some big hot topics such as genetics, brain imaging, and poor comprehenders. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And please don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and leave a, leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. I have Nicole Landy today, and I will start by having her introduce herself. So, hi, thank you for having me, Tiffany. My name is Nicole Landy, as you just said. I am an associate professor of psychological sciences at the University of Connecticut, and I also am the director of EEG research at Haskins Laboratories. Well, I am so glad to have you. We have tried to schedule this since SRCLD in June, and it has been a series of unfortunate events. And today we have pieced it together, you on the phone, me on the computer, and we're making it happen. So I'm glad, glad we are able to do that and just so happy to have you today. Um, I'm going to jump right in and ask you a, a tricky question, but I know you'll be able to answer. So you study reading disorders from genes to the brain to behavior. I was wondering if you could give us an example of what this looks like, and then also what made you crazy enough to want to tackle this complex relationship? Because most researchers focus on one or two areas, and you are able to pull together all of these areas. Yeah, um, thanks for the question. It's a really great one. Um, and I can, I'll answer it with an example of a data set that we're actually kind of reworking currently. So um, this is one where we initially found a relationship between a gene called BDNF, that's the uh, gene that comes for the brain-derived neurotrophic factor protein. And we found uh, in the study, and it was published in, I think, 2016, it's um, Yusinska et al., and we found that individuals who had the risk allele for this gene, and so those are um, those that have the met allele. Um, so, and it's this particular, I should have said this, this is the, the, the Val-Met polymorphism on the BDNF gene. So those individuals who had the risk allele who were um, met carriers, they performed more poorly on some assessments. So on measures of reading comprehension and on measures of phonological memory. And when they were reading in the scanner, they actually showed greater activation on the right hemisphere in a number of regions, suggesting that they weren't utilizing the left hemisphere as we typically see for single word reading. But then we also found when we took those same regions on the right, we saw that those were actually positively correlated with a variety of different reading scores. So we published that, and that was a little bit perplexing, that, that, relationship there, that relationship there between the reading scores and the activation at the level of brain. And so um, with some colleagues, we just reanalyzed this data recently using a mediation analysis. And what we found, and this is what we predicted, so that's really exciting, mm -hmm. is that when you have individuals with the risk allele, those individuals with the risk allele, indeed, overall, they have poor phonological skill, and they use the left hemisphere less. But those individuals with that risk allele who activate more on the right are better readers. Mm 
Oh. So like within that group. Yeah. So it suggests that for those individuals, like there's some risk there yeah. with that particular allele, right? And that, you know, you have some poor phonological processes, but maybe some of those folks are compensating on the right. And that was what we were seeing in the group contrast. And that bears out in the mediation analysis. Oh, that's so that's cool. Yeah. It's one example of the kind of work that we've done in that area. And as you can kind of hear from that story, it does take more work, right? So sometimes what you initially find um, makes, you know, you find something new and a piece of it makes sense, but then there's also a piece of it that's not quite so obvious because you do have three levels of analysis. So there's more uh, chance for that to happen. Mm -hmm. What do these kids look like when you see them? Or how do you find these kids with this uh, MET hit? Ah, yeah. So I should have uh, specified that. So this is a common variant, right? Oh. So um, yeah, so a lot of what we study in my lab, I should have spent a little more time elaborating on this, um, but we study common variants, right? Okay. So you can look for rare variants that have been, say, associated with dyslexia, but, you know, they are rare. <laughs> so, right. you know, that's going to be harder to find. And if you want to bring in kids and you want to get multiple levels where you're getting brain and behavioral measures and genetic measures, um, right, you're going to need a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to do that, we study common variants. And this particular um, uh, this element polymorphism has been studied relatively extensively in other domains. It just hadn't been applied to reading yet. Mm. So people had studied it pretty extensively in the met in the memory literature. And so we thought, okay, there might be an association here. Um, and I think it's really important that people do consider these kinds of variations where there's um, kind of an association with general cognitive function because we know that reading draws on so many resources, right? So when you have a really complex skill like reading, you're not, you're not going to get something like a single gene that's responsible, right? You're going to get a number of different associations between genetic variation and behavior and patterns in brain. And so this is just one that we explored. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. And so what is your new project then? Uh, you said you have one that you're following up. Is that right? Yeah. So the follow-up, um, the follow-up there is part of a larger project. So we are, uh, a group of us is part of the Florida Learning Disabilities Research Center. So that's a, a big project down in Florida, headed at Florida State. Mm -hmm. And we have one project on that uh, P50. And in our project, we're doing uh, both mega and meta-analyses of um, gene-brain behavior relationships. So this, that second analysis that I told you about, that mediation analysis, is part of that initiative. So basically, we're taking a lot of data, we're aggregating it together, we're doing some reanalysis of, of you know, analyses that have already been done and published, and then we're also, by combining lots of data together, right, so these are all sites that are contributing that have a lot of imaging data, they have genetic data on the same people, and they have behavioral data on the same people, then we can go back in and interrogate the data and look for new associations, new variations in genes associated with behavior or associated with the neural endophenotypes because we'll have a really large data set. Oh, that's fantastic. And it does make me think, like you talk about this, this common variation, that it goes back to looking at um, all these skills on a continuum and you're trying to capture some of that continuum and think about the mechanisms driving those individual differences, correct? Yep, exactly. Oh, that's very cool. It seems very futuristic, but I'm wondering what you think is the next frontier in this, you know, in this vein of understanding these relationships and how you see that um, impacting assessment and intervention in the future. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's still so much foundational work to be done here. It's funny. You find, you know, one association will get out there people will study the mechanisms behind one association for years and years and years and still 
not understand it really well. So FOXB2 is a really great example of this that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, right? And there has been a lot of great work on this, but, you know, initially you just have the association, right? Then, and that's with, you know, a, a specific family, right, that had really severe impairment. Then you get some studies that come along and find that even in um, you know, more typical populations, you do see some associations with um, particular SNPs on FOXB2 and language behavior, right? Then you have a lot more animal work that's really probing the mechanisms there, right? And so, you know, it takes some time to really tease apart these relationships. So, you know, what what's happening um, in terms of the next frontier? Well, there's a lot of basic foundational stuff still being done. So, you know, there's a lot of associations that get identified. Then you have to make sure those associations are robust, right? Do you mm. see them replicate, right, across multiple samples? So that's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Then you have the basic animal work, right, where you have to kind of explore the mechanisms. How exactly is it that this particular variation goes on to impact brain and, and, and behavior, right? That's still being done, right? And then, you know, maybe in the sort of most futuristic sense, um, <laughs> you have uh, the big data kind of questions, right? So for example, the work that I do is really um, so far has boiled down these genetic variations into almost a group analysis, right? You'll say, okay, these guys have the risk allele, these guys don't. How do they look differently at the level of brain and how does that relate to behavior? And that's great, but you know, those kind of single variations, they don't happen in isolation, mm-hmm. right? And we know there are, there are going to be, you know, gene by gene interactions. There's going to be multiple genes that impact reading. So, you know, really what we need to start doing is, is looking all at those together, right? So you can start by looking at a couple genes that are known to have a relationship with each other. You can also do what we're, um, doing a lot in, in this uh, big data project I mentioned to you before was um, trying something a little bit new, which is to start with a brain endophenotype, right? Mm-hmm. To start with something, let's say it's, you know, volume in superior temporal gyrus or something mm-hmm. and put that into a model and try to identify new genes using that instead mm-hmm. of behavior, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do that will kind of help move the field forward and help us identify both new variants, but also identify interactions among relationships that maybe have been already identified or partially identified, and then other work that's going to further probe the mechanism for those associations that have been identified. Wow, that's really cool. I love how you're taking it from so many different angles to really understand what's driving the differences we see in behavior and vice versa. That's really Yeah, it's really kind of required here, you know, there's just, there's there's a lot to consider at once. Yes, absolutely. It seems like uh, your point's well taken. I think that you have to kind of step back, look at some discrete pieces, and then put it back into the puzzle. And then at some point, you can pull that puzzle together. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, you know, I was thinking about what we've learned from the brain studies in reading, um, and it, less so in language, but also in language, some of those basic ideas that we take for, I feel like I take them for granted now. For instance, that reading is a neurobiological process that um, yeah. a child, you know, comes to the table with, uh, you know, their genetic makeup and how that affects their brain and then how that interacts with the environment. It's something that, um, you know, is such a big step forward that I think we take for granted now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, it's funny because, you know, we know that that's the case, right? Um, but exactly how it all plays out is another story, right? Yeah. And so that takes a lot more exploration and 
um, it's not something that ha can happen really quickly, right? And so we all have to be very patient, unfortunately, sometimes. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm not very patient. That is definitely something <laughs> I struggle with, is being patient. But I, I think science has taught me patience for sure, seeing things move uh, over time slowly, but also kind of stay, stepping back and thinking about the leaps we've made, even though they seem like they've been you know, slow over time, just the fact that now we have most people, I would argue that a lot of people in the uh, in society now have a sense that, or I hope they do, that a child is not lazy when they can't read, for instance. It's not something they're choosing. It's that they have, um, you know, they're doing yeah. the best they can with the brain they have, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and some of that has been, you know, rapid discovery over the past 10 to 15 years, but some of it has been um, improved dissemination, mm -hmm. right? And so it does really seem though, like the message has gotten out there. Um, and more recently, there's a there's more of a paradigm shift in people's thinking that's, that's spreading. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, I do think there's this um, sense that, you know, oh, you can't diagnose dyslexia unless you have a brain scan. If someone said that to you, what would you uh, say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not true, right? So. <laughs> I think it's great that people are trying to make contact with the cognitive neuroscience approaches and, and utilize them. And they definitely have, they add value to our studies, right? Mm -hmm. They really add a level of understanding, um, especially in terms of mechanism. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about diagnosing a child, right, that that's really a behavioral yes. uh, issue, right? It's, it's about their level of reading or their level of language. And that's something that our behavioral assessments are, are are quite good at, right? There's always room for improvement, um, but I don't think that in terms of, you know, assessment or diagnosis of dyslexia right now, we are adding, um, we are adding there in the, in the area of neuroimaging. I think we probably are going to begin to see um, some value added, maybe value is not the right word there, um, some additional diagnostic yeah. value when thinking about subtypes, yes. um, uh, and and mechanisms for groups or classes of individuals and and maybe someday you know there might be something more individualistic um, or at the individual level but right now you know we're just not there yeah I think that is helpful because uh, unfortunately sometimes when I hear that argument evoked it's to have children not be diagnosed as opposed to trying to advocate for diagnosis or, you know, not get services and those kinds of things. So that's one of the myths I've been pushing to when I talk to people is that we do know a lot from the brain, but we aren't to the level now where we can just do a scan and say, oh, yep, you definitely right. have it, or that you require the scan. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, doing yeah. that, I know, well, of course not, but I do think it's almost like the pendulum has to swing almost that far to then, um, you know, get the message out that it's important that the brain is, you know, um, we're learning a lot from the brain when it comes to dyslexia, but it's not that far yet. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about like word reading um, versus reading comprehension. And you've done studies of children who have, you know, reading comprehension deficits or word reading deficits or both. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about those two different populations of children. So those who have word reading problems only with good language comprehension, those who have language comprehension problems with good word reading, and how they're the same, how they're different, and if you've done work on some of their brain patterns and what you found. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, um, I, I almost start, I don't want to say started, but early on in, in my graduate training, I became really interested in kids with comprehension problems, mm -hmm. and it was just 
sort of timing that there had been a bunch of interesting studies uh, coming out of the UK that had been looking at kids with comprehension specific impairments. And I found that really fascinating. Um, and I don't know if it was just because everybody around me was studying decoding based problems yeah. <laughs> and phonological problems. Um, but I thought, you know, you know I, I found semantics really fascinating. I always had. And so, um, and the, the kind of um, prevailing theory that was um, uh, being thought about at that moment was, you know, maybe these kids have a semantic deficit. Maybe it's something like what you see in semantic deficit, you know, patients, you know, not the same, but mm. there could be something like that going on here. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting, and, and that's what got me um, started on that. Um, and I have continued to study that population of kids. So these are kids who don't have um, decoding problems. They don't have phonological problems, um, but they do have comprehension deficits. And one of the areas in which I really wanted to contribute there was to talk about this being a language problem, not a reading problem, right, um, with the idea that those individuals who are going to have those kind of not code-based problems with reading are going to be having problems with language comprehension and it's going to be in the syntax and in the semantics. Um, and, you know, can we find, you know, can we reduce it? Can we see kind of, you know, the, the, the lowest level, you know, piece of this puzzle? Um, and I would say that, you know, while we have learned a lot about um, poor comprehenders, um, as they're often called, mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't think we've kind of ever reduced it to that small piece to be able to say, look, it's this, you know, semantic thing or this, it's the syntactic thing. Um, it, it doesn't look like that, right? And and the kind of imaging studies that have come out, there's far fewer of them, right? right. Relative to say dyslexia or some other or, or other low-level um, phonological-based reading uh, problems, there are far fewer of them. Um, and many of them look at, you know, sentence processing, for example, some of them do look at word reading. Um, and you do see some differences that look like they could be, say, semantic, right, some uh, higher level language processing, some more right hemispheres, some memory regions involved. But I wouldn't say that it's as clear cut, you know, I feel like we have a, many, many years of research to look at for phonological based reading problems or word level reading problems, um, and where we can see um, reliable patterns, at least. There's some differences, and people are still working out the nuances, of course. But with respect to comprehension problems, um, it's it's much less clear cut, and I think we just we need a lot more work there. Um, and as with the study of dyslexia and other um, reading disabilities, word level reading disability, um, I think it's going to take some some time in terms of both thinking about classification and who's in your sample, but also in terms of the methodology for best studying it. So um, I can't really make a clear cut distinction in terms of the brain, right, in terms of um, how these guys differ at that level. Yeah, but I think that is some exciting work. And, uh, you know, I, I'll tell the listeners, you and I have talked about doing that work, which would be very awesome yeah. uh, because of my interest in uh, developmental language disorder. And we know those children with developmental language disorder tend to become those poor comprehenders. It would be great to look at some of those differences because some of the kids with, you know, developmental language disorder have good word reading over time, which is surprising, and yet they have this language comprehension deficit. Seems like it would be a very cool approach to think about how you've studied these other relationships and apply it to developmental language disorder in such a needed area, I think. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I didn't mention developmental language disorder, but as you know, right, there's very, there's so a few studies in, in that domain too, imaging studies. There's more now. Yeah. Um, it's a little tricky because people have used different different names and such, a, and there's been a lot of disagreement in terms yes. of how to kind of classify those kids. 
but there's less of it relative to, to word reading problems. And so I do think it kind of will take an approach where one's looking at, um, you know, a continuous variation along multiple domains, as well as looking at group level differences, considering, for example, like we've talked about individuals with dyslexia, individuals with language impairment, developmental language disorder, and individuals who look like poor comprehenders, right? Because there's going to be overlap in some domains and not in others, but people haven't necessarily systematically compared those three groups of kids at the neurobiological level. Absolutely. And you study children with brain imaging. How hard is it to work with children in the, in the uh, fMRI? I have people ask me that question sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's challenging for sure. I mean, the population of children that I've worked with tends to be a little bit older. So I think it's even more challenging for those working with really young children. So, um, you know, pre-readers and, and kindergartners. We've had a few studies where we start about as young as kindergarten. But for the most part, um, we've been imaging older children. So older school-age children and adolescents with um, fMRI and, and structural MRI. Uh, when we look at younger kids, we tend to use, um, and even not with younger kids, with school-aged children, too, I use a lot of EEG. Mm -hmm. um, and in some school-based work that I'm doing now, um, we're using EEG. And, and that is less um, difficult to use with children. It's a little bit more motion tolerant. You can do it in a naturalistic setting. It's less anxiety-provoking. It doesn't give you the same information, right? So, for example, you can't get as uh, fine-grained spatial resolution with EEG that you're going to get with um, MRI, um, but you can get a lot of other information. Um, and in particular, you can get uh, great information about the timing of when things happen um, in the brain. And so it's really good for, for some things. And so I try to use those in a complementary way, those two approaches. Mm. But yeah, there are definitely some special challenges with all of these methods for working with children. And motion is a big one, anxiety is another one. And can you tell the listeners who don't know what the difference is between the EEG versus an fMRI, for instance? Yeah, sure. So fMRI is going to involve a magnet, right? And so you're going to have to go into a very large uh, magnet at a scanner at an imaging center. Um, and fMRI, a functional MRI, that is, is going to track the, um, the bold response, the, bl the blood oxygen level dependent response. Um, and so, um, you know, kids lie down in the magnet and they perform a particular task. And um, this imaging methodology can can track where blood flow, right, where blood is flowing, which is a sort of indirect index of areas that have been using energy, right, mm -hmm. to do a task. Mm -hmm. um, and then with EEG, right, so that's the electroencephalogram, we are putting electrodes, and these are totally non-invasive, we're just recording, um, on the scalp, and we're recording small voltage changes, right, and what we're actually picking up is electrical communication, right, indexed by voltage change at the scalp from large populations of neurons. Um, and so this is nice because it's really sensitive to timing, right, because it's electrical activity, unlike the, the blood uh, signal that you're getting with MRI, because that tends to be very sluggish in response to actual neural activation. And then have you used MEG before? I have not. So I am not the right person to tell you about MEG. <laughs> I've done a little bit of MEG, but, oh, having to say it, so magno. I have to think about how to say it. Magnetoencephalography. Yeah. See, I knew you could say it. Um, it's interesting. <laughs> but I don't almost, do it. <laughs> <laughs> it almost seems like I've done some attempt to do some of that work. Um, and I've had a postdoc who uh, we just published a paper recently uh, using the MEG. But one thing I 
liked about the Meg is it almost seemed like it combined some of those components, right? Because you can get, yeah. you know, based on the uh, timing, you can get some fairly good timing and you can start to get based on some of the algorithms, some good location. Um, and, yeah. you know, you still, but you're still dealing with similar kinds of things that relate to motion and working with young children, but it seemed like a nice um, complement to the suite of brain imaging techniques that could be used. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For whatever yeah. reason, it seems like that's caught on a lot more over in Europe than it has in the U.S. So we have far fewer MEG yeah. <laughs> uh, researchers here in the U.S. Yeah, you're right. And it really does depend on when you're doing that work, you have to work with someone who knows the MEG or you're yes. not going to get the work done. I mean, you really have to work with, uh, yes, an expert in that area. And then have you ever done anything with FNIRs? That's another one I dabbled in, in for a little bit. That, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that we do have a couple FNIRs set up at Haskins and mm -hmm. I have some, uh, I'm sort of tangential to some work mm -hmm. there. So FNIRs is, um, you know, there you're tracking the blood response as well, right? So it's also um, the hemodynamic response. Um, and you are a little bit more directly measuring the sort of oxy and deoxygenated uh, hemoglobin, which gives you um, a tiny bit better, I guess, sampling resolution in time, but really you're still kind of dependent on this sluggish response. So it's still better for, for where than when. Um, and then you're doing that with light. Um, and those are by, by probes on the scalp. And so there's some other limitations there, like scalp thickness can mm -hmm. be a problem um, or hair and things like that. But um, again, I've been sort of tangential to that work. So I just kind of know um, about it. I can't speak as much to its um, limitations or other issues. Yeah, one of the reasons I was kind of drawn to it was the fact that maybe you wouldn't have to have as much influence of motion so that when you do speaking tasks, you know, like we had one that you used for the yeah. head, right? I mean, it still had motion issues. So I don't think, I mean, every, yeah. every imaging technique, right, has its pros and cons related to the research question you're asking. Um, right. But I thought it'd be nice for the listeners to hear if they haven't heard some of this discussion, because I do think we throw these words around. Um, and of course, in the popular pre popular press, they're thrown around as all of its language based or brain based. But I do think it's interesting to contrast the pros and cons of some of these techniques that are out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And both NIRS and EEG are going to be a little bit more motion tolerant. I think the interesting there, thing there is that, you know, yeah, they're more motion tolerant in the sense of like, when you look at the scan, <laughs> the motion isn't as evident, right? And right. it doesn't seem to be messing with your signal as much. But I think we, we all don't really know how it could have more subtle influences. And so, you know, there's a whole question there on how one might kind of look at that. In greater detail. Yeah, definitely. It does. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, and then also, let's talk about the genes for a minute, too. I'm just curious, how do you usually collect your genetic data? Yeah, so that's a great question, especially when you're talking about kids, right? So all of our um, genotyping data is, uh, we, we extract DNA from saliva. Mm -hmm. um, and that has its own um, set of issues, which is why it's so um, kind of magical to be able to have, you know, genotyping data and neuroimaging data and behavioral data on the same set of kids. Um, so saliva collection, you, you just fit <laughs> essentially into, mm -hmm. into a, a little container. Um, and that's actually a lot harder than you would think it is because you have to produce a significant amount of saliva, <laughs> which is like just unpleasant to think about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, go through the extraction process and quality control and all of that to, to do the genotyping. And that takes a whole other level of expertise, right? So you have to work with a team that can really um, expertly do that as well. 
Um, but at least, you know, we're not collecting blood, which of course is another way that people obtain um, genetic data. And that is, um, you know, harder to get from children because um, it can be unpleasant to, to go through that experience, but also because you need a phlebotomist on site or you need to send them to the pediatrician, which is just a hassle. Yeah. Um, so we use saliva, which, you know, really you can do quite good uh, genotyping on the saliva. It doesn't have quite the same quality as the blood, but for most of what we're doing, it's quite sufficient. Mm -hmm. And you've done the cheek swabs before too, ever? I have never used those actually. They tend to be done with say infants where you or like really young children where you can't actually get yes. them to spit. Right? Right. Yes. <laughs> so um, that's when you would you would employ that. Yeah, I haven't done much with the cheek swab either. Uh, although again I had a postdoc that did and then as part of a study I did in working memory, we did the saliva and that was quite the experience because like you said, it seems easy but it's actually not. And Yeah, it's not. <laughs> a lot of work for them. But it does, you know, none it, of this is easy. No, nothing's easy. But I do think that it's like um, thinking about when these studies are published, uh, what's gone into them is just monumental in terms of getting kids into the scanner or whatever type of brain imaging and then getting the spit and just all of that, it, the or, what it's orchestrated. And uh, it's kind of amazing. Uh, but it's told us yeah. some really cool things, I think. And and I, I can't wait to continue to see what you're doing and also hopefully work with you on some of these questions, uh, especially about mechanism. Yes. Uh, but Likewise. I'm looking at our time and I do want to make sure we cover the last two questions I always ask every guest. And okay. the first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Oh, that is such a hard question. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is hard. Uh, well, I think the most exciting project for me is this project um, where we're doing in-school uh, EEG data collection. Oh, okay. um, just, yeah, the, the opportunity to partner with, so these are in schools for children with language-based learning disabilities. So mm -hmm. these are private schools mm -hmm. um, where all the kids who are enrolled have some kind of language-based learning uh, mm -hmm. disability. Um, and many of them have dyslexia, but not all of them have dyslexia. Um, they're all going, um, undergoing intervention for their reading problems and language problems. And what we're trying to do is just more dynamically track them over time mm -hmm. um, and maybe get a better handle on identifying precursors to intervention response, right? So we know that there's a significant number of kids who don't respond to even the, you know, um, best evidence-based interventions. And we don't, I mean, we know some of the things that, that we have some hypotheses about why that might be true, but I, I don't think we have great traction on that question or that problem. Um, and so what we're trying to do is really get a better dynamic model with behavioral assessments and neuroimaging measures over time as kids progress through um, an evidence-based intervention for, you know, a period of years, right? So it's really much more intensive and really longer over a period of time with kids who have the most severe problems. Wow, that's so cool because you'll get probably a lot of bi-directionality, I imagine, like, you know, seeing what's happening in the brain, then happening intervention, then vice versa. Uh, one of my yeah. favorite studies was by uh, kind of the same vein. It was by Mark Fay. Gosh, I want to say it was in the mid-2000s, but he was looking at uh, ERP data related to some some work in language therapy for children, and he showed that prior to, so he had the, the EEG data and he had the behavioral data, and he showed that in the, that the EEG was almost like a crystal ball that foretold who was going to make the shift, so you could start to see basically a brain shift that was occurring before the behavioral shift. I thought that yeah, was really that's interesting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, right? that that's a very cool might, thing. You might show that similar or, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of like the holy grail, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, you think that you might actually be able to see something there that's giving you kind of a hint that someone's going to respond or they're about to respond. Um, or that they're not going to respond, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, ideally, for those who are not, maybe something in there that could tell us what they might need, right? And so, um, you know, there's sort of a multi-level uh, layered question there, and we're using a bunch of different kinds of assessments to help us answer that question. That's very cool, because I don't even think we have that necessarily figured out even in the behavioral data. So it'll be great to look at both the behavioral and the brain data together to see what you find. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the hope it, is that together there'll be more than the sum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you talk about working with these schools that have concentrations of children who have language-based deficits. Seems like it would be nice that you have that concentration because you need those large numbers of kids to be able to figure out these complicated relationships. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's exactly why we're doing it. And not only that, just to be able to collect data in the school. Wow. It's just a totally different environment. Um, yes. You know, I didn't realize how much like, the data is so clean. The kids are happy. They're enjoying it. And it and it presents this whole like STEM learning opportunity. Oh. Right. They're like learning about their brain and learning about how their brain changes. It's, it's having this amazing sort of self-efficacy uh, side effects, which mm. is so awesome. And then we're, of course, learning about the school. Um, and how reading is actually taught, right? My background's in cognitive neuroscience. I have a theoretical understanding of how reading is taught, but being able to see it and practice and interact with the, the teachers and, and talk with the students, it's just a whole different world. It's really phenomenal. Oh, that's amazing. And I never thought about, I've definitely thought about the byproduct, like you said, of working with schools, because I come from an SLP background, but at the same time, it's not a teaching background. So when I'm in the schools, I also just am like mesmerized by what's happening and all that has to be coordinated. But I did not think about the benefit to the kids in terms of learning about their brain. That's so cool. Yeah, it's super cool, right? It's super cool. Yeah, we have this at the one school. We have these high school students. So this is with the AIM school and with the Windward school, mm -hmm. the two projects. I should I should say who they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, they um, uh, at the one school, they have high school students and they're actually able to participate in like an internship program and really kind of gain a lot of hands on skills and help us select the data. So it's very cool. Oh, wow. And you never know what trajectory that puts the child on. Maybe they'll become a brain scientist in the future. Well, exactly. That's oh, exactly right. There are already a few who are pretty interested. So. Oh, that's really awesome. Okay, so my last question I always ask is, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? Yeah, what a great question again. <laughs> I like to ask the tough uh, ones at the end, especially. <laughs> Yeah, childhood, I don't know. I, I should go back and ask my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's something good there. I mean, I remember where the wild things are, for oh. example. Um, but I bet there's That's something awesome. I've just sort of overlooked. <laughs> um, you know what's funny about yeah. that, Nicole, is that I, um, I rarely do this, but I'm recording two podcasts today. And you oh, are the second person I've recorded today that that was their favorite book. Ah, very cool. That's very cool. Popular. It's, it's like amazing. Yeah. And because I'm sure the listeners will hear both, the other one I recorded today was Nicole Patenteri. So I have two Nicoles, two favorite ah. books. Uh, very cool. Wow, okay. <laughs> Many coincidences. I know. I should play the lottery today because this is a lot of coincidences yeah. happening. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And, and in my current life, in terms of books, you know, in my adult life, I read, you know what, I commute a lot. So I do so much audible. Oh, that's so awesome. what's interesting. Yeah. And so I, I kind of devour novels. Mm. But what's funny about that is what plays well in an audio format is not necessarily 
what is going to to be great to read and i found that really interesting right so um so right now i'm i'm listening to the Windupberg chronicle and it is terrible in audio format but oh. but a really great book in in print um anyway so that's just one example but i've listened to a lot of things that were really great this year um eleanor elephant is completely fine stands out love that one too. um yeah that was really good right a little life was really great um um a gentleman in moscow was super entertaining oh, i have a whole long list if you want those oh i would love to have those <laughs> I know, for I, audible i also commute but i'm kind of addicted to podcasts right now <laughs> so um, it's not all work podcasts um a lot of true crime so i'm i i do go in and out of audible and the podcast but it's funny you said that about audible and like what you listen and what you read i always say when people say what book have you read i don't distinguish whether i read it by reading it with print or whether I listen to it on Audible. To me, it's like I read that book. Yeah, I yeah. think that, I mean, that does happen in terms of like how you like consolidate on it over time, like your understanding of yeah. the, the story and the plot. But some things like the narrator isn't good yes. or it just doesn't like do well. Like, okay, for example, the, the Murakami book I mentioned uh -huh. that I'm listening to now that I might not get all the way through because of this. <laughs> It, you would read it much faster than mm. you would tolerate. You know what I mean? But yes. not all books are like that. So yeah. I think that's, that's part of it. Yeah. And I think you're right. To me, I almost, I do think I have this bias to pick audible books that are read by the author. Like, and, and actually I, yeah. I heard that that's actually a bias that a lot of people have. Audible is trying now to get more authors to read because as a listener, you tend to be more interested if it's the person who wrote the book. Um, yes. especially with biographies or something like that. Like I read the year of yes or read, I didn't read, I listened to the year of yes by Shonda Rhimes and it was so cool that it was read by her. I just, I loved that, you know, cause it's like, yeah, okay. I completely agree with all right. of that. Trevor yeah. Noah's born a crime was so yes. amazing in audible format. Right. Yes. And that's, that's a really good example of that. Right. Cause you know, your prosody, you know how you want it to sound. Yes. <laughs> yes absolutely yeah you're like i yeah you know where the stress goes yes, yes exactly you wrote it so you know it it does seem to add to the depth of knowledge so well that's yeah. really cool i'm so glad nicole we were finally able to record this podcast thank you so much Me for too. being so uh you know flexible and uh you know joining me because i think the listeners are going to learn a lot from what you're doing and i'm going to hang on everything you're writing too because it's just so cool such cool work yeah Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I too am glad we persisted. We should put a little, um, you know, note next to this with our story of like attempted meetups and all the little things that, you know, kept us from doing that. That's right. We persevered. <laughs> That's right. Oh. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.